Hi, and welcome to the Authorised Podcast, the podcast where writers speak. My name is Kevin Hillier, and today you'll meet Matthew Riley, an Australian author, a best selling Australian author, uh, talking to us about the seventh book in his series, the final book in his series about uh, his hero, Jack West Jr. It's called The One Impossible Labyrinth. It is bringing to an end this series of seven books, and we'll uh, talk to Matthew about how it's all evolved from day one right through until the conclusion that uh, you'll have in your hot little hands if you walk into your local bookshop now, The One Impossible Labyrinth. Something that doesn't need a lot of uh, dealing with or jumping through hoops to uh, get involved with is a relationship with our partners, our podcast partners, CSCG. They're terrific people to deal with. Jump on their website and have a look at the services they offer, the people that are, uh, you'll be involved with. It's very simple, cscg.com.au. Or give them a call, have a chat after you have a look at the website, double nine seven four eight triple three. whether it's tax, superannuation, they're there to help you. They have uh, all the resources. Uh, they'll come up with solutions to your problems. Uh, they'll work with you through the whole thing. So give them a call. Double nine seven four eight triple three cscg.com.au. Now, not only does Matthew Riley write uh, terrific books and has written a number of those, uh, he also uh, owns a DeLorean. I want to find out about that too. Yes, the car from the Back to the Future series. What is he doing with the DeLorean? Let's find out what he's doing uh, in his office in Los Angeles where he's based these days uh, to talk to us about uh, his latest book, the final in the series, uh, featuring Jack West Jr. The One Impossible Labyrinth. Um, Tell us about yes. putting this together and how you decided this was going to be the last one of this series. You know, I wrote Seven Ancient Wonders back in 2004, came out in 05. I, I wrote Seven Wonders, Six Stones and Five Warriors back to back. Then I took a break. And when I came back with the four legendary kingdoms, I really decided I had to go all the way down to one. So I was planning the One Impossible Labyrinth pretty much from when I kicked off the four legendary kingdoms. So four, three, two, one was always going to be vroom, big roller coaster right at the finish. So how does all this formulate in your head? Because oh, there's obviously a lot going on there. Yeah, you, you've got to keep the sort of the big ideas for each book uh, in your head. So I'd always planned that the final book in the series would take place in this gigantic underground labyrinth, which would just be filled with the most lethal booby traps. Anybody who's read the Jack West books knows they've there are lots of booby traps. There are six books worth of booby traps, but this one had to be the mother of them all. Yep. Uh, and so, yeah, so for Four Legendary Kingdoms, it was The Labours of Hercules. Now for Three Secret Cities, it was Atlantis, El Dorado. Um, and for Two Lost Mountains, I came up with this notion of a falling temple, which was going to be this sort of centrepiece action scene. So you keep your key pieces you don't have to go through every little detail, but you need to know the general thrust of it. So when you the started... The thing as well, which it kicked off in, in Four Kingdoms, was these sort of royals who rule the world from the shadows. That was always going to be a theme all the way through 4321. Yeah. So when you started the first one, did you have any inkling of where Seven would, would put you? No. 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 Uh, I, I had an inkling when I started the second one, Six Sacred Stones, and you can actually see throughout... Uh, even in One Impossible Labyrinth, there are twists that I layered into the Six Sacred Stones uh, back in 2006 when I wrote that. So with Seven Ancient Wonders, I really just wanted to see if I could do Indiana Jones in book form. And I enjoyed it so much. I thought, well, what should I call the sequel? I'll call it the Six Sacred Stones. And 
And then you discover that fans expect you to count all the way down to one. So suddenly I was running a seven book series. Yeah. So no, I, I, in hand on my heart, I did not know when I wrote Seven Wonders. It, it, and if you read it closely, it is a self-contained story. Uh, and then Six Sacred Stones does kick off a larger story, which does end up with those royal families and kings and warriors. So I was starting to plan a big series, but it was with the second book, not the first one. Jack West Jr., tell us about him and how, how he how he came to you and how he's developed over the seven books. You know, Jack West Jr. has been fun because he's literally half American, half Australian. And my books do have a, a large American bent because usually it's about, you know, the fate of the world and, and high stakes, which usually brings in America and the American military. And that said, I'm still Australian. And my books are very, they have a very Australian element to them. So it's nice that Jack has an American father and Australian mother and was with the Australian SAS and lives out in the outback and then goes off on his adventures. And with this last book, the last book, in addition to being you know, set in this one big labyrinth, it had to be about him. I had to bring the story back to the hero. And you learn a bit more about his childhood, a bit of a bit more about how he became Jack West Jr. How do you become this, you know, adventurer hero? And, and that that was a big part of it. If if you just have action and no character, audiences will put you down. Yeah. How did how did the the depth of the character come to you? I mean, is that something that that, that came easily to you? Is it based on a, a, a composium of a whole lot of different people in your life? No, he's just me. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, you, I mean, hey, I, I don't know. I don't want to generalise. You've probably spoken to more authors about this than me, but I imagine for many authors their heroes are idealised versions of themselves. Most of them won't oh, say that, though, you know. Most of them won't actually say, oh, yeah, I'm that character. Yeah, well, I wish I was that character. <laughs> I, uh, they're, they're the, he is the idealised version of me. Um, but no, no, no. I, I found, I think... What I did with Jack was I went back to his school days and there's a there's a scene of him stepping in and getting beaten up by these older boys so that a younger kid, a smaller kid, doesn't get beat up. You know, sort of a defining moment. Yeah. You have obviously uh, two audiences for this book. There's the audience that have been with you for the, for the six so far and have, are hanging out mm-hmm. for this one. And then there's a, a new bunch of people who are going, what's all the fuss about this that there's mm-hmm. seven books about? Yeah this so what what would you tell people who are in the in the new camp to the to the franchise about what what they're going to get when they pick this book up you know i would say you could start this series at the four legendary kingdoms yeah and come into four three two one and uh, i give you enough information to cover seven ancient wonders six sacred stones five British warriors uh it's a little uh, that this is why we did a little opening for this book to say the story so far. Yeah. So if somebody is drawn to the one impossible labyrinth, which I think is like, you know, it's a wonderful title and it's interesting. And yeah. when you when you're writing a title, you want it to be something where people in a bookstore go, ooh, labyrinth. Yeah. Impossible. Interesting. Uh, and so I, I learned, and this was my education, uh, from Tom Clancy. I was reading Tom Clancy when I was at law school, and he had a very deft way of just bringing you up to speed. If you hadn't read The Hunt for Red October, you know, he said, or Jack Rest had met this Russian agent, you know, in, you know, down the barrel of a gun in Moscow or something. 
And that was enough to keep readers up to speed. So if somebody jumped into One Impossible Labyrinth, I think they could get up to speed. I think it'd be better if they started at four or maybe uh, the two Lost Mountains, but uh, you can get away with it. Every now and again, I give one of the books to a friend who hasn't read any of them. Yeah. And I say, hey, could you understand what was going on? And usually they say, yeah. Is there, a, is there a sadness that this is the last one, that this is the kind of final chapter, or is there a prequel? Uh, that, that seems to be the, um, <laughs> no, you no, don't. No, actually, there's no real sadness. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. I, I had planned it. I've left everything on the field. Uh, I, the goal when I started writing Six Sacred Stones was to link up all the ancient places of the world in some grand unifying theory of a story. And there aren't many places left in the world I can write about. I think I set out to do it. I kept a few things like the Great Sphinx and even, you know, the the Siege of Troy, you know, up my sleeve all the way up into the last two books. I'm sort of satisfied. I'm content. And I have a natural aversion to prequels because you always know the hero is going to get out of it alive. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. If there's a defining feature of a Matthew Riley book, I hope it's that people think no one is safe. So, so no, no, there's um, there's maybe a little bit of sadness, but I'd say it's about five percent. Yeah, ninety-five percent. You know, I'm happy with what I did. What about uh, taking Jack West to another dimension, to to the film dimension? Yeah, I sold the television rights to the Seven Wonders series to Spyglass Media, which is a, a big production company here in the States. They've got deep pockets. And they, they've they got a, a very, very good showrunner named Jose Molina who's done a – he did a Marvel show. Might have been Agent Carter. And so he's had experience running big shows and he's done a great pilot script. For that sort of thing, which is an issue I've encountered my whole life in Hollywood, uh, the budget's big. You know, you're talking eight million bucks an episode minimum. Yep. And if you're going to do eight episodes, that's sixty-four million bucks. It's it's a big thing. Uh, so that's where I've I've learned over the years to align yourself with someone you think can make it, and they've said all the right things so far. But we'll see. Yeah. Now you've been in Australia uh, working on working on a movie. Yes. Yes. The process of writing a book and the process of being involved in a movie. When you write a book, you sit down in front of your computer and go, whooshka. When you're making a movie, you've got all these other people involved. Do you enjoy both processes? Yes, yes, because they're different. It's funny, I do meet meet a lot of writers in my travels, some of whom say, should I write screenplays or should I write novels? You know, a screenplay these days is about 95 pages for a feature film, double-spaced, dialogue, stage directions, Whereas a book is 400 pages, single-spaced, it takes longer. Mm. It takes me a year to write a book. It takes me a month, six weeks to write a script. Getting a book published is hard. Getting a film made of your screenplay is a thousand times harder. It took four years for Interceptor to get made, and even then there was one moment of shining luck which got it made. That was when Elsa Pataki wanted to do it. So with a book... If you can get your manuscript seen by an editor or a publisher or perhaps a literary agent, there are only a few steps to boom, boom, boom. If they like your stuff, you can get a deal. Yeah. But with a screenplay, you can have so many false starts because you do need all the planets to come into alignment, cast, crew, money. Any one of those falls apart, COVID, 
your your movie's gone. Yeah. So it's um, uh, when people say to me, "Should I write screenplays or books?" I say, "Write books." Uh, it's and for myself as a, a screenwriter and now director in Hollywood, I love still going back to my computer and writing my books. It's enjoyable. It's just me and the screen and my imagination. Is that your happy place? Yeah. Yeah, it was funny. I came back to LA from the movie and I I had a little bit of a downtime period and I I started writing something else. That's what writers do. We we write. We don't really feel feel sort of whole or satisfied if you're not really at least thinking about something to write about. When you write a four hundred page book and then you write a ninety five page screenplay, do you get the same you get the same joy out of both of those, or is there a difference there when you write those two different things? No, it's it's the same joy. It's the same joy. It's um, they're both just different things, and it's like you could talk to a newspaper columnist who writes a what six hundred word column twice a week. Mm. I literally can't do that. That that's like you know. Uh, that's like the long jump at the Olympics. The screenplay is like the 100-metre sprint and the novel's like a marathon. You know, they all involve running, but they're just different arts. And so writing a novel, I can, I can feel the flow and the ebb and flow of the story over the course of a year. With a screenplay, there is no ebb and flow. It is Usain Bolt running down that track. You start hard, you go hard, you finish hard, and it's if you don't get that, your screenplay is dead in the water. And that, yeah, if you asked me to write a column once a week for a newspaper, I would not even know what to write. 600 words, I couldn't do that. Yeah. Different different art. Yeah. So, yeah, no, no, there's, there's the same joy as long as you appreciate that it's just a different art. Given that you work in both genres now, do you storyboard your books at all or does it just flow out of you? That's a good question. No, I do. Uh, I increasingly storyboard the books. Okay. Uh, these, as as the Jack West books got bigger and more expansive, and these underground booby trap places got more complicated, I had to draw them before I'd write about them. So the labyrinth in One Impossible Labyrinth, I drew that out. In fact, I had to plan most of it before the Two Lost Mountains was done because a key clue emerges at the end of the Two Lost Mountains. So I had to commit to the design of my labyrinth with the second last book because that was going to be key, this this tattooed scalp of a mummy. Uh, So there's some underground cities in this new book uh, with a nice big scene of an aircraft carrier uh, coming over this waterfall. I had to draw that. And once I drew it, and it took me a week or so, once I drew it, I just had the picture in front of me here at my desk and all I had to do was describe it. Yeah. So, yes, I, I storyboard the movie and I storyboard the books. Wow, because that's a lot of the, the fiction writers I talk to don't. They just let it, they just let it flow. Do, does your characterisation have the same kind of dimensional uh, restrictions or do you just let that flow? No, I have, you know, I have notebooks sitting around the house <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, good. They always have to fit in your pocket. Yep. No, that's – and the notebooks will always be character, character, character. You have them with you wherever you are. Yep. You can, so you can always – once I write it down, it sort of embeds in the brain. But if I don't have the notepad there um, – so, yeah, no, and, no, always have that ready. And you've not been tempted to change the notepad for a, for a telephone or, or is that the emergency backup when you can't do the notebook because you're driving the car or you're doing whatever? 
pretty much. Yeah. Oh, it's the mid. Uh, I have I do use the notes uh, app on my my iPhone. Yep. Uh, and then often email it to myself. But yeah, there's something still uh, still about the the writing down in a, in a little notepad like this that just works. Yep. Oh well, it does. Like, as you say, it embeds it in your head. If I don't write it down, I don't remember it. If I, no. if I even if I say it, I don't remember it. But if I use and I use the note app all the time to send myself messages about things I need to do, it's a perfect way yeah. to do it. I've often felt, you know, I I have one beside the bed. You don't want to have that million dollar idea <laughs> just as you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning and go, "What was that idea again?" <laughs> yes, yeah. and then you'll get half a thought of it later on. Yeah, I'll take you back in the stuff that I read about you. To Kill a Mockingbird was a was a key. Mm key book for you. Do yes. you see your books having the same effect on people that that book had on you? Is that is that is, Does that yeah. cross your mind at any time? I, I get told that a lot. I went to a high school, I went to a Jesuit high school where in, uh, in year seven and eight they gave us, you know, Henry James and Gulliver's Travels and there's a book called Silas Marner they gave us in year seven and I mean, if you want to turn a teenage boy off reading for life, give them a 200-year-old book, which is slow. I hear people giving teachers come to my book signings and say they gave contest or ice station to the year seven class. And the boys are like, wow, this is great. Yeah. It's fast and furious. And they talk about it and they go, I didn't know books could be this enjoyable. To Kill a Mockingbird, I, I reread it uh, about two years ago, actually. Kill a Mockingbird is a remarkable thriller. In fact, in some cases, it reads like a horror yeah. book with, you know, trees blowing in the nighttime and Boo Radley and the, the snap of the blinds as they go past Boo Radley's house. It was the first book that, that I was given at school where I lost track of time and enjoyed the story. Yeah. And that I reckon they had turned off my classmates from reading with those other books. But it was To Kill a Mockingbird, which made me go, oh, that's why I see people reading novels. Yeah. So what's next? This is a good question. <laughs> I, uh, I, well, it's a good question because I COVID has had many effects and I wrote The One Impossible Labyrinth a year early. It wasn't supposed to come out till two years after Two Lost Mountains. So I actually got a, a like everybody else, I was stuck at home. Yeah. I had the story in my head. I was just taking a bit of a break. But I thought, well, since I'm at home, let's see how much of it I can get written. And I got it done. I'm a year ahead of schedule. And so I went off and, and directed Interceptor, which helped. Uh, so Macmillan wanted, I've said, you know, do I want to do a new book? I said, for sure. But I said, I just want a break. I just like to rest. You know, read. Read nonfiction. Watch documentaries. Just input a little bit. I think the next book has to be a little different. I've got the fate of the universe at stake in One Impossible Labyrinth. And so I think maybe something more along the lines of the tournament, something maybe more historical where the stakes are still big, but it's no longer, you know, the contraction of the universe. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think you have to zig and zag. you got to sort of change it. You, I can't keep topping myself yeah. in that, in the stakes. Yeah. And it would just get silly. In in the in the movie side that you're working on, are you are you looking at other people's stories and reading their stories? And what are you what what attracts you to a story? You know, I I'm not reading other people's ones. I somebody asked if I would direct the Seven Wonders pilot, 
which is written by somebody else. And I'm not sure I could. I, I think I liked, I've, I've directed my own script with Interceptor. Yeah. And I, I think when I write it, I see it in a certain way. So I think I've got other scripts that I've written. I've got an idea for like a sequel to Interceptor. So if it goes well, maybe I just jump straight into that. As I found with the books, with the Scarecrow books, I Station with the Jack West books, when you get on a roll with a character, you're just so into it, just keep running with it. Yeah. And I think I'd do that with the movie as well. Maybe I'll start looking at, you know, maybe I Station as a book, turn that into a movie, that'd be good. Yeah. Where's the DeLorean parked? So, yeah, when I moved to America, the DeLorean stayed in Australia. Ah. It's in my friend's garage in Canberra. I got it converted to right-hand drive, so I couldn't bring it here. So <laughs> I, I can't bring myself to sell it. I love yeah. the D. But I, I did bring my, you know, my various uh, sort of spaceships and uh, uh, inspirational toys, like the Die Hard building and a Jurassic Park van and Indiana Jones going under his truck. Yep. So, I still get my inspiration, just not the D. Uh, you're still a fan. That's out uh, there. I think that's it. You haven't been Hollywood hasn't hasn't kind of uh, sucked that out of you yet. It tried a couple of times, but no, no, it hasn't done that yet. No, it's good. That's good. Well, some congratulations on the on the series of books, not just this book, but uh, congratulations on and thanks for spending some time having a chat about uh, about uh, your latest book. It's been a pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me. Good on you, Matthew. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Well, thanks to Matthew for his time. The book is available now in all good bookshops. You'll see it in uh, all the big department stores as well. It's called The One Impossible Labyrinth, and I'm sure if you jump on that, you'll be able to uh, jump on all the other books in the series as well. And we look forward to seeing what uh, Matthew has to offer us uh, in the future in that film that he talked about too, Interceptor, which uh, obviously will be coming uh, hopefully to a screen sometime in the middle of, uh, of next year once it gets finished in uh, around about February, as he told us. Um, my thanks also to, uh, of course, Pam McMillan for... Uh, arranging that interview with Matthew uh, in his Los Angeles studio. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of Authorised, the podcast where writers uh, speak. We've got plenty more on the way and plenty more that you can go back and discover where you found this particular podcast. Go back and uh, discover uh, earlier episodes featuring the likes of William McGuinness, Monica McInerney, Peter Fitzsimons. Uh, There's some beauties there in our Authorised podcast library. Check it out. And thanks once again to our podcast partners, CSCG. All you have to do is pick up that phone and you can call them and have a chat about your financial situation. Double nine seven four eight triple three, or jump on the website cscg.com.au. Till the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Talk to you soon. Take care.